electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour of the true state of stocks, whether the correction has now run its course. We will ask Altimeter's Brad Gerstner. He joins me exclusively in just a bit. Can't wait for that. Also with me for the hour today, the Investment Committee. Stephanie Link is here along with Jim Labenthal, Josh Brown, John Ajarian, the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. I'll take you to the wall, as I always do, show you where we are 12 noon in the east. We're green across the board off the best levels, but nonetheless, we're trying to put some follow through together from that really violent reversal late day yesterday. Dow's good for nearly 190. S&P's up by nearly 1%. There's the Nasdaq positive. Russell's good for about 1% as well. 10 years backing off three percent. Two ninety three is where the 10 year note yield is. Doc, and speaking of backing off, I'm taking a look at the VIX, which was at thirty five, which now sits just north of 30. Yeah, pretty dramatic uh, back off on the VIX, Scott. And (laughs) that is something that you do look for. We've all talked about, uh, you know, is it a tradable bottom and this and that? Did you get that sort of capitulatory swoosh to the downside? Uh, Since we're in NBA playoffs, I'll use swish, Scott. Um, And yes, we did. Um, Now, was that enough? Was that the last one? I am not saying that at all. But I am saying that Thursday and Friday were so ugly. And then yesterday, during the session prior to that turnaround, that was all pretty ugly. And uh, the VIX does reflect exactly what you thought it reflects, Scott. And that is that people aren't nearly as pessimistic I took off my TLT puts. I'd had those on for weeks and weeks. Um, I removed those, Scott, because I think a lot of the short-term, short-term um, downside for bonds, upside for yields, is priced in. Now, we'll see whether or not the Fed really decides to slam a very, very hawkish tone tomorrow or whether they say, we gave you 50, we're likely to move again on the June meeting by at least that same amount. And... That, I believe, is priced in right now, Scott. If they go beyond that, then, you know, Katie, bar the door. It could be anything. Okay, so, Josh, Doc tees up the perfect question for us, and he said it himself. Was that enough? Have we experienced enough pain in the market? Down big yesterday. Obviously, we finished awful on Friday. We're down big yesterday. We had that nice reversal. Jonathan Krinsky, we follow him closely. A BTIG says not quite. Not yet. Not yet. We're getting closer He says, because metrics like the percentage of stocks above their 200-day moving average, put call ratios, defensives getting hit, our absolute level for the S&P 400 of sub 4K means it came real close. However, we still haven't felt that, in his words, get me out at any price type of trading. He says we're close to a bottom, but not quite there for that capitulation moment, if you will. What do you think? Uh, We're in a bear market, and one of the things that bear markets do to you is they grind you down with these intraday reversals, uh, these green days, 
these days where the hardest hit stocks all of a sudden are up 11, 12 percent. They draw people in off the sidelines who had been waiting for the moment because they think they're going to pick the bottom. Uh, they, they force people to average down into positions that they otherwise wouldn't because they say, oh, no, I was right on the stock after all. I better own some more cheaper. It's, it really screws with your psychology. The market is not satisfied until everybody loses. And I want to point everyone's attention today to what we're seeing in the two areas that if, if we've seen enough pain uh, and, if, and if we're really going to avoid a recession, the two areas that should not be doing what they're doing today, uh, one is travel and the other is consumer discretionary. So Expedia had actually an earnings report where their revenue doubled up 100% year over year. But for whatever reason, the details weren't good enough. And that stock is now acting like all of the rest of the technology stocks, despite the fact that literally the hottest category of all of consumer spending right now, travel, um, and, and, and this is the company that most accurately represents the trends in that space. It's not a hotel, but it has hotel exposure. It's not an airline, but it has airline exposure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Expedia had all good things to say, even on business travel, and they're crushing it. And look at everything else falling in in sympathy. Booking, Marriott, Hilton, MGM, Caesars, on and on. Okay, um, airline's not as bad. Consumer discretionary is the big underperformer today. Nike down 3%, Ulta down 1%, uh, Domino's down 3%, Chipotle down, Starbucks down. You can't have those stocks not working uh, if, if you're saying that, oh, we've had enough, uh, the market's had enough. Those are the stocks that have to catch a bid here. And they might, they might. But really and truly, if the consumer doesn't hold up, the whole shooting match is over. Let me ask so you So far the consumer has, but we're seeing signs that, we're seeing signs that at the edges, uh, there's some hesitancy to pay prevailing prices, and it's not the best thing to see right now. So be, be careful how you read into some of those names, because as Mike Santoli flagged for me, literally minutes before we came on the air, Expedia, Live Nation, Josh, that's a, that's a U stock, uh, Datadog, Cody, Hilton, um, those are also Melvin Capital stocks, which we find out that fund is down a lot year to date. There are some questions about what the future of Gabe Plotkin's fund is going to be. And maybe they're going after some of the names in anticipation of, of him liquidating. I, I don't know, but that's certainly part of the conversation around those specific names. He's not names. big enough. So, well, yeah, he's not big enough. It's a, si a, si a sideshow. I got it. I got it. Well, last thing. Nonetheless, last thing. You know, just be careful the, how you read some of the activity in some of those names, given sure. how you know, people, come after, people come after those kinds of names at times like this. Sure. Last thing. I think there's two categories of stocks right now. The ones that, like, that I'm interested in, the ones that are working currently, one of the trades that I gave on the show that I'm personally doing, ITA, which is Defense and Aerospace, acts really well, looks great right now. The other, IEO, this is Energy Producers, uh, also very close to 52-week highs, looks great. That's what's working now. The second question is, what's the fat pitch being created by all this volatility? And I have to tell you, I really feel it's biotech. The biotech stocks have come down almost as much as the rest of the NASDAQ and the rest of the growth stocks. The difference is they're not cyclical. 
like the science of, of shrinking tumors is not affected by whatever Jay Powell decides to do this week. So I think that that is going to be the fat pitch, but I still think it's too early. Okay. At a certain point, though, if you ask what flush do I buy, I think you want to look in that area. Right. Life sciences, biotech, they're going to be huge winners. So, Steph, um, this question of whether we've had enough pain, whether mm-hmm. there's too much pessimism in the market, Ed Yardeni asks that today. And it also comes on the heels of a conversation I had yesterday in overtime with Eric Johnston of Cantor Fitzgerald, who says you're going to get a violent move higher in, in May. The whole thing's going to come in May. Eight to 10 percent on the S&P. Um, it's an interesting call. You match that up against Paul Tudor Jones today, who was on Squawk Box. Quote, you can't think of a worse environment than where we are right now for financial assets. You don't want to own yeah. bonds or stocks, he said. So you got cross currents all over the place. You do. You absolutely do. You have a push-pull going on right now. So on the one hand, you actually have pretty good economic data. I mean, look at the ISMs, the PMIs, look at factory orders today. How about those job openings at a record? I mean, we now have more job openings than unemployed people. So the economic data has been solid. Earnings have been solid, actually. 75% of the S&P 500 have beaten by about 8.5%. And actually, estimates are going higher only by a little bit, but they are going higher. We're on track to do 12.5% in earnings in the first quarter and probably about 9 or 10% for the full year, right? But so those are the good things. The bad things are, are, are the things that we've all been talking about ad nauseum, the Fed, inflation, war. I mean, the Fed is going to try to engineer a soft landing, and they don't have a very good track record of doing so. And so that has led to multiple contraction, even in the face of earnings going higher. So we're now at 17.7 times for the S&P 500, down from 21.6 times earlier in the year. Can we get to the, to, to the average? We sure can. Okay. 16 is the average. Could we go lower? Can we go lower? Yes, we could. I, it, it's impossible to know. We are going to be in a choppy range for the entire year, in my opinion. We may have a nice rally in May. That's great. But we are going to be data dependent and watching the Fed all year long. And that is going to be a problem for equities. And that is why I have said all year long that I want to have more of a balanced, diversified portfolio. Yes, I still own energy and materials and financials. Mm -hmm. But my latest purchases have actually been on tech and healthcare. So I'm trying to find uh, ideas and opportunities and staying patient. So lastly, to you, Farmer Jim, again, Steph, points out a lot of good. She points out bad, too. And the question is, and the most important question, frankly, in the market is, is the bad too much for the good? Is the Fed going to ruin all the good because of what it has no choice but to do? The task at hand of what Ken Griffin talked about yesterday out west, more uncertainty or at least the most uncertainty since the GFC, global financial crisis. You got Tudor Jones on the network today talking about the environment, too. Yeah. And and Scott, I think this is a question of what Steph just said. Can the Fed engineer a soft landing? As she points out, there isn't a good track record from the Fed. But, you know, ultimately think about what the Fed's mandate is. Uh, Maximum employment, they've got that. And price stability, which they're working on. And if you look at some indicators, it may indicate that price stability is closer than we think. The ISM survey yesterday, the manufacturing survey, showed a market decrease in prices paid. You've got freight costs coming down. You've got inventory to sales uh, in corporate America picking up, all of which should put lower pressure on inflation. If this Friday you get a good pickup in labor force participation rate, that could be another signal that inflation has peaked. Not is peaking, has peaked. The real tell will be next week when we get the April CPI. That's what I'm waiting for. Between now and then, we know what the Fed's going to do. 
You know, earnings have already really been shot for this for this quarter. There's still some coming in. But what I'm really paying attention to is next week's inflation, because if there's wind that comes out of the sales of the aggressive Fed, this market will rally again for the reasons that Stephanie pointed out. The effect has been on the multiples. Yeah. Right now, we're trading at 16 and a half times next year's earnings. If you get a little ease off from the Fed, that could easily okay. pop up to 18, even, which would be a 10% rise. And even if it has peaked, it's still high, right? 40-year high, you got to bring yeah, it down. Yeah, but that's, that's not gotta, what matters. You, you know that's not what matters. It's the direction, not the level. It's right. the direction. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break because we're going to talk more about the markets with Altimeter's Brad Gerstner. He joins us in a CNBC exclusive next. He made a big call last fall about a pullback in high valuation tech. He was darn right, too. So what does he see now? He'll find out. We'll find out from him next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Our headliner today said back in October of last year that high valuation tech stocks were primed for a big pullback. He, of course, was right. So where is the sector heading now? Let's welcome back Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner. He is live with us today from the Milken Conference out in Los Angeles. It's good to see you again. Welcome back. Hey, great to be here, Scott. You know, I, I always feel like when you're with us, we're either in the storm or we're trying to figure out how long it's going to be until we see the sun start shining again. And I mentioned in the intro to you, this call you made back in October when you were with us about what you expected to happen to especially higher valuation tech within the Nasdaq. Let's revisit that and we can talk on the other side. If the Nasdaq were to correct, if the growth multiples were to correct to January 2020 levels, pre-COVID, in January 20, nobody thought that multiples were too low. We'd have about a 30% correction in the Nasdaq. So I think when you're looking at the distribution of probabilities, whether you're playing from home or whether you're doing this for a living, you need to leave open the possibility that as rates begin to move up, as the world normalizes, multiples are going to normalize. I'm not sure. I mean, the shirt looks the same, although it looks like a hoodie this time. So some things change <laughs> and some things stay the same. So we're down 22 and percent, 22 and percent from Nasdaq highs. You said 30. I mean, you know, that's close enough. Are we done? Well, I'll tell you, I like my beard game better from last year, too. <laughs> it's hard to believe that that was only October 19th that we were here at Milken and that we had that conversation. Um, but, Scott, 22 percent in the Nasdaq doesn't really tell the story. The internals of the Nasdaq, the growth stocks, as you well know, 
are down 50 to 80 percent. Um, and so we've now retraced below that five-year average that I referenced in October. Certainly when we were talking in October, I wasn't anticipating a war in Ukraine. We weren't anticipating the concerns around hyperinflation, energy inflation, food costs that we've now seen. So we've overshot the averages. And now I think is the time that whether you're playing from home or whether you're a professional investor, you have to find opportunities to buy. You know, it's notable that Berkshire, after having $7 billion in net sales in 2020 and 2021, has deployed over $50 billion in the first quarter of this year. They don't know and I don't know when the tradable bottom is in. But we do know that we're closer to it today than we were last October. And I think if you're an investor investing over a one, two, three-year time horizon, Find your best ideas and put money to work. Well, you have to find opportunities to buy. Those are your direct words just now because it's such a stark contrast to what Paul Tudor Jones told our network today. Quote, it's hard to find a worse environment than where we are right now for financial assets. You don't want to own stocks or bonds. What do you make of that? Well, I'm a huge fan of Paul. Um, I watched him this morning. I encourage everybody to go to Robinhood.org and donate. Um, But, you know, if you think about the four things that Paul talked about, interest rates, the direction of inflation, the ongoing war, and the increasing concerns about uh, slowing global growth, those are well known, right? So at some level, they're priced into the market. Do we have more to go? Paul doesn't know, I don't know. But it's more asymmetric to the upside today. I just listened to Jim and Steph talk about, you know, us being data dependent and looking at that CPI print on May 11th. I think inflation has already rolled over. I think there's already a tremendous amount of demand destruction occurring in the world. The Fed and what the Fed does in terms of rates over the course of the next uh, six months will determine the path of multiples. I think it's at least even odds that that direction will be up from here because so much has come out of the market from a growth multiple perspective. So more asymmetric to the upside, does that imply in any way, I mean, do you have a, is your gut feel, is this like a, would that be a bear market rally or the start of something more longer lasting as we perhaps face (laughs) peak inflation and, you know, the market anticipates and understands and can frankly come to grips with what the Fed is going to do in the meetings ahead? Yeah. Well, it's a a great question. I don't really know what a bear market rally is. You know, that's the domain of traders. What I can tell you is I try to find excellent companies that are going to compound capital and earnings or compound revenue and earnings over a long period of time. I want to buy them at fair prices. I think I'm buying them today at fair prices. Um, And so if that is the case, and if it's also the case that we're going to live in a world with inflation around 3%, with rates around 2.5%, 3%, that is the world we've lived in for the last decade. And it's been pretty damn good for growth stocks and for markets generally. If you believe there's a new normal, if you believe we're going to persistently live in a world of hyperinflation and interest rates that are gonna be five or 6%, then now is not the bottom. So you have to have an opinion on that. From my perspective, again, we already see growth rolling over. You know, the Fed hasn't really even raised rates. Tomorrow's my birthday, May 4th, they're gonna give us a 50 basis point birthday present tomorrow. But the fact of the matter is the market is already pricing it in. The mortgage rate is now over 5.3%. We're already destroying demand for the purchase of new homes because people can afford less home today. 
We already see used car prices rolling over. That's part of the challenge for Carvana, for CarMax, et cetera. So we see evidence in the market that the components of CPI are already being impacted by the expected direction of rates. You think the market's overdoing it on the expected direction of rates? Both, both markets, bonds and stocks. I don't know if I look at the 10-year today at 2.9, uh, might, might the Fed you know, push us in that direction? I think that two and a half to three uh, uh, makes sense to me. Um, but anything above that, I don't think it's sustainable given the level of growth uh, and given the uh, uh, level of economic vitality in the world. I mean, we're on the verge of a recession uh, uh, in Europe. Um, China has dramatically slowed down. China accounts for almost 25% of economic growth. And there's been dramatic slowing, and we see slowing across the board in the U.S. That's why, you know, people are concerned about fundamentals. We see single-digit growth out of a lot of Internet companies. We're hearing talk of layoffs or hiring freezes out of companies. So when you start hearing all of this, when you start seeing used car prices come down, you have to wonder where we are, and I think Jim pointed it out well, that we may have, in fact, already peaked on inflation and, you know, if inflation comes back down below four by the end of the year, then I think we're going to be in a situation that is highly investable from here. Jim, I want you to get in because, um, look, this, this view kind of matches with yours that you've articulated on this program. And, I've, you know, I've tested you on it and you've you have not wavered one bit, Jim Labenthal. What do you have for Gerstner? Well, so, Brad, I mean, I'm glad to hear your thoughts. It's always nice to hear we're in sync. Here's what the other side of our thesis is saying. And smart people are out there saying the Fed doesn't care, that even if inflation does moderate, that the Fed is hell-bent for leather to raise rates. Um, look, I find it hard to believe, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, you heard me earlier, dual mandate. If they meet the mandate, why raise rates? But the other side is saying they're raising. And by raising, well, I'm sorry, Brad, clear, the Fed, by, by raising, I mean, like, you know, to 3% in the near term on the Fed funds rate. <laughs> well, well, Jim, let's be clear. The bond market is already there. Like, that's what the world is saying, that, you know, the 10 years trading, you know, between 2, 9 and 3. So I, I don't I, I think the surprise, uh, you know, has already been delivered to the market. The market understands we've gone from 1.6 a couple months ago to 2.9 on the 10 year. So I don't think that that's a surprise anymore out of the Fed. I think you would have to be well over three for that to be a surprise. Um, and so to me, you know, taking the other side of that argument, of course, uh, you've heard me say on this show many times, you know, it's all a distribution of probabilities. You have to leave open the possibility that inflation is going to run hotter and that rates are going to be even higher. I promise you, when we hear from the Fed tomorrow, on May 4th, they are going to be as hawkish as they've ever been. And the reason for that is because they don't want the market to back off from those rate expectations. But then we're going to get that May 11th CPI print. I, I believe we're going to see it lower month over month. I think that will happen again in June and happen again in July. I think we're going to see further signs of global slowing. And I expect by the end of summer to uh, early fall, you'll hear from the Fed. Right. That they've accomplished some of their goals with these rate hikes, 50, 50, 50, that inflation is starting to roll over. And now they're starting to think about the balance between growth and inflation. They certainly don't want to throw the uh, economy into a deep recession. Remember, we just had our first quarter of negative real GDP. 
right? So uh, uh, another quarter of negative real GDP, and we're already in recession territory. Let's do this, Brad. Sit tight. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Brad Gerson. We're going to get inside the portfolio when we come back. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Christina Partzinevelis, and here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The leaked draft Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade is authentic. That's according to Chief Justice John Roberts. But he stresses that, quote, it does not represent a decision by the court or the final position of any members on the issues in the case. Roberts has ordered an investigation. Before heading to Alabama this morning, President Biden told reporters that if the court throws out protections for abortion rights, it would be radical or a radical decision. He warns that other privacy rights like access to contraception as well as same-sex marriage could be called into question. The draft opinion is prompting calls from some Democrats to drop the Senate filibuster rule that effectively requires a two-thirds majority to pass most legislation. That would clear the way for Democrats, who have a majority in both chambers, to pass a bill protecting abortion rights and have it signed by President Biden before the November elections. Tonight on the news, Shepard Smith will be in Washington to report on all of these developments in the national abortion debate. Scott, back over to you. Sina Partsinevelis, thank you so much. We are back now with Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner joining us today from Los Angeles out at the Milken Conference. I do want to get inside the portfolio like we always um, do with you, Brad. And you're always so transparent, too, with our viewers. Can you give them an idea of where you stand today from a positioning standpoint? If you, if you do believe that uh, the asymmetric risk is more to the upside, where, what your net long is, just give us an idea. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, sure, Scott. Um, you and I talked on the overtime or uh, 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 on the close a couple a couple weeks ago, um, and I told you we were basically fully invested. We remain fully invested, um, but we're not using a lot of leverage. Um, now is not a time, I think, in the market where you need to use leverage. I think you can generate great returns without a lot of leverage. Our largest position continues to be Snowflake, um, uh, Uber, Facebook, Microsoft. And the thing that I want to point out, you know, that connects the dots on each of those positions is not only do we think those are companies that are going to continue to compound at double digits uh, for years to come, but they're also generating free cash flow. 
So it's about balanced and profitable growth. And the thing the market is penalizing the most today, and Josh pointed it out earlier on the show, but the market doesn't want anything to do with unprofitable growth. And so I think these companies are iconic. They're market leaders. They're doing things to improve their business and their businesses we want to own. Notable, too, are the ones that you don't want to own anymore that you used to own um, that obviously don't fall into the category of balanced and, and profitable growth. I don't know. Um, Shopify, you're, you're totally out of that. UiPath, you're totally out of that. Unity, you're totally out of that. I should also note, those are all Kathy Wood names, which I find ironic and interesting in and of itself that those are the kind of names that she continues to bet on while you're saying, I don't need this anymore. These are not the kinds of stocks it would appear to me that the market really wants or investors want to be in now. Scott, you and I talked uh, last uh, October and December, and I said we were lightening our load, and we were lightening our load in those type of names. And our concern was simply that as the market pulled in on the risk curve, that those would be the first names that would be penalized within the growth sector. And of course they were. Those names are now down 70, 80, in some cases, 90%. I'm not saying those names aren't investable today, but I don't think you have to go that far out on the risk curve to get really terrific uh, returns for yourself and for your investors. And so it's really about your appetite for risk, but you're right. We consolidated, I told you this in March, we consolidated behind our best ideas because I don't know if the market is going to have an appetite to invest in three weeks, in three months, or whether this is going to take 18 months for us to work through this inflation and rate concern. And so during that period of time, if you want to ride that volatility, you have to know you're in a business that's going to be worth more in the future because of the fundamental things that are happening in that business. And so we, we consolidate into our most confident positions. I don't want to put you in a, an un- uncomfortable position to have to pile on <laughs> Kathy Wood. But when you see what's happened to that fund um, with some of the names that you used to be in and the way that you just articulated why you're not, I'm just curious yeah. as to what you make of all of that. Listen, I don't know, I don't know much about a research process, um, you know, but I know it's effectively an index fund on stuff that I view as, you know, part of the highest risk component of the growth sector. And, you know, I'm not sure if and when the world's going to want to return to that level of speculation. You know, Bill Gurley and I were talking last week and he sent out this tweet that I totally agree with, which is you can't anchor yourself to to prices that the most risky companies were trading at last year. The Fed, by taking rates to zero, forced everybody out on the risk curve. And so what you want to do is own quality companies that you know are going to compound top line, that you know are going to compound bottom line and be worth more in the future. And I just don't think you have to take that type of speculative risk today. But, you know, clearly she has a research process she believes in. I think I told you at some point last year, um, you know, that we had shorted a basket of SPACs, that we were short, uh, you know, indexes like ARC you know, to hedge out some of the growth risk in our own portfolio. Um, But that's just because it represented the riskiest part on the growth curve. You mentioned, you know, one of your best ideas. It remains one of your best ideas in in your portfolio. One of your larger positions, obviously, is Meta. Um, Stephanie Link, I want to bring you in here because you're adding to Meta. What do you have for for Brad Gerstner? And we are just, what, a week off the quarter in which seem to relieve some of the investor concerns that have been around that name. But what do you got for Brad? 
Yeah, hi, uh, hi Brad. It's great to have you today. Um, so the biggest question everybody has on Meta is, can they monetize Reels, and how long will it take them to monetize Reels, and can the stock work if they don't? Well, Stephanie, I, I, I've heard you talk about it. I, I, you know, I, I happen to agree with a lot of your position on the name. I mean, let's take a take a step back on on Meta for a second. Generating $25 billion in free cash this year, bought back $9 billion worth of stock in the quarter, generated $8.5 billion of free cash in the quarter, in a quarter that they had almost everything that could go wrong, go wrong, right? Whether it's IDFA, whether it's lapping some of the hardest internet comps because a year before everybody was sitting on their couch surfing Instagram, this Q1, everybody was out in, in, in the world post-COVID doing things. And so they had a lot of natural headwinds, but even in that tough quarter, they managed to generate over $8 billion in free cash. Now, on top of that, I think they, they articulated something that's extraordinarily important, which is Facebook for the better part of the last decade has been a friend or social discovery engine. They showed you content that your friends recommended. They've made massive investments over the last couple of years to turn themselves into an artificial intelligence discovery engine. That is the secret behind TikTok. We're investors in ByteDance TikTok. We know a thing or two about why they have been so successful in targeting customers. As Mark said on the call, when you make that transition, you go from being able to recommend from 2,000 pieces of content to 2 billion pieces of content. So we think they're in the early phases of, uh, of an engagement expansion game. And obviously, Reels is going to be a key component of that. 25% of Instagram usage is already Reels. Reels, they aren't monetizing it that much. Um, but there's no reason, in fact, we think they have the best monetization engine in the world, that they won't be able to monetize Reels as we go into the back half. We think that growth into the back half accelerates significantly. And you're doing it with a company, again, that has a disciplined a a approach to free cash um, and to buyback. So we feel like you have a protected downside and you have a lot of optionality to the upside. Let me ask you one last question before we take another break and, and do our final segment after that. The, it plays right off of this conversation that we're having now, the whole FANG acronym, which some now suggest is dead, um, that you just you can't invest in the basket like you used to. Netflix has its obvious issues. You know, you just gave us your view on, on Meta, uh, Facebook. Well, what's your view overall on that? Did it, has FANG run its course? Is it dead? Well, it, it, set, set aside FANG for a second. Just think about the hyperscalers, right? If we talk about Amazon, if we talk about Google, if you talk about Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera, I mean, they just gave you incredible prints in the quarter. I mean, the clouds themselves, now $40, 50000000000 billion in scale that are growing at over 40%. Scott, just three years ago, people thought their growth rates would be in the mid to high teens, and they're growing over 40%. Our single biggest area of investing in both the public markets and the venture markets is in the, tr the, 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 the shift of all enterprise workloads into the cloud. We saw a massive acceleration into the quarter. That's not going to uh, abate anytime soon. We think that's a decade-long investable trend, highly profitable businesses. And so, you know, we saw a lot to like in the quarter, and you get to buy it at a much fairer price than you could last fall. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is the most important takeaway, which is buy the stocks that you've been waiting to buy now, 
hold them for a year or two, and they'll, they'll exit higher. You know, a lot of people said to me, well, I'm just going to wait. You know, they felt like they missed the last year. I'm just going to wait until we had a correction. And I always said, once you have the correction, the correction will occur at a moment in time that will have a lot of uncertainty. And by definition, when the correction occurs, nobody wants to buy anything. And that's why you get these market resets. But you're not put off at all. I mean, Amazon didn't exactly have an incredible quarter. I mean, but all revenue growth, you know, almost across the board, not for every one of them, uh, for certain, uh, was slowing. I mean, it was a standout from a number of these names that revenue growth is slowing from where it was. Now, maybe that's because you were in a pandemic and, you know, you're, you're doing some top-line growth that you can't repeat to, to that degree, certainly sequentially. I, I don't know. You, you tell me what you think. I mean, Scott, Scott, not, Scott, not to interrupt, but, you know, come on. 40% growth in a software company off a $50 billion base? These are extraordinary growth rates, which just a few years ago, nobody anticipated. And what it demonstrates is the secular power, the shift of all enterprise workloads to the cloud is way more powerful than the impact of inflation, slowing growth, increasing rates. What you want to do to protect yourself from inflation is find growth assets with durable secular trends and great margins. And those businesses all have them. All right. Another quick break. Back our final segment with Brad Gerstner is just after this break. Back again with Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerson around at the Milken Conference. Josh Brown has a question for you, Brad. I'm not sure if he likes you as much as he used to. I'm looking here that you sold out of CrowdStrike, which has been one of Josh's favorite names. But nonetheless, I'll give him the question to you, and, and maybe he can react to that, too. Hey, Brad, I, I want to I uh, go back to Snowflake, which you mentioned is one of the names you're most bullish on. This is a stock that had a market value of $160 billion uh, last fall. And now it's about $54 billion. It was a price to sales forward 73. Now it's 27. If you're owning it at both of those valuations, aren't you kind of saying de facto, I don't care about valuations. I think the growth will be more than enough to overwhelm those, no matter how expensive I'm, I'm in this stock at. Like, give us give us a, an answer, like, as far as, like, how you're thinking about a company like that, because there are many stocks that this would be apropos of. Right. You're exactly right, Josh. And it's loud here, but I'm, I'm, I'm tuning in. Um, on Snowflake, the fact of the matter is, as I said to Scott last October, November, December, we had a lot of growth hedges in place, um, you know, to help hedge out some of the risk in those uh, positions. And so... It's not fair to just look at a 13F and say that's the economic exposure, as you well know. So for those playing at home, our exposure did change over that period. We distributed to our LPs over $6 billion worth of Snowflake stock last year. And so, you know, we, it's not as though we did nothing in the face of these high multiples. At the same time, we have extreme confidence that Snowflake is going to revisit those prices in the years ahead. I like to think about it not as a, a multiple of one-year sales, but let's think about you know, what they're doing this year from a free cash flow perspective. They're going to have 15% free cash flow margins this year at nearly 100% revenue growth. They said they're going to take their free cash flow margin target significantly higher at their investor day later this year. We think that will be 30 to 40% in the fullness of time. And so, yes, that multiple, like all multiples, were too high in October and November. I was very open 
about talking about that. But when I look at the valuation today, please don't look at a one-year forward sales number. It's highly misleading for a business that's growing at 70, 80, 90%, particularly when they're generating free cash. It would be one thing if they had an unproven business model and they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars a quarter, burning hundreds millions of dollars a quarter in order to generate that top line. You know, in Q4 alone, they signed $1.4 billion in annual contract value. That's as much as their total revenue last year. And so we think this is one of the biggest beneficiaries of the shift of all data workloads into the cloud. Um, and that's why it's the biggest position in our portfolio. We still like CrowdStrike. We still like some of those other software names you mentioned, but we're consolidating at these prices into our better ideas. Lastly, I got to let you go. Um, and, uh, Steve Weiss photobombed you in the back as you were on with us, as typical Weiss fashion uh, would have it. CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike. I know I joked about it, but why did you get out? Because Josh is in and he's talked about it a lot on this show. Well, listen, CrowdStrike's been a excellent performer this year, a lot over the, uh, the, the security fears associated with the war in Ukraine, etc. And so as a portfolio manager, I just have to look at the things that have been hit harder that we like, maybe even a little bit more on the margin. Um, and we rotate dollars into those things. We love, we think it's a great business. It will continue to grow, um, but we just had a better idea. And while we're on the topic, you know, Josh started uh, the segment, I think, by talking about travel stocks. Um, we know a thing or two, as you know, about, about travel stocks. What I would tell you is Peter and Expedia had an incredible print today. Um, but the problem for the travel stocks is they've outperformed largely all other internet stocks. And so if you look at the multiple on Expedia or the multiple on Booking, it tends to be higher than the multiple on, say, something like Facebook. And so I think what you see today is people just giving back those things because they're trading at higher multiples on EBITDA or free cash than a lot of the other stuff in the internet sector. I so much appreciate your time. You're a fave of our viewers. I uh, can't thank you enough for making time for us, especially a good amount of it. I know you're busy out there. Brad Gerstner, we'll talk to you soon. Right, that's Brad Gerstner, Altimeter Capital. We'll take a quick break. What the committee heard from Brad and what they think about it. Plus, John has unusual activity. We'll do it next. To the panel now, Dr. J, you heard what Brad Gerstner had to say. Sir. Asymmetric risk is to the upside at this moment. Your reaction? Well, I think he's right, Scott, because of the uh, just the, the investor survey that we talked about last week, because uh, sentiment is so negative. That doesn't mean that you load the boat and wait for an upside pop. But uh, I think Gerstner is right. Um, as far as these travel stocks, um, I, I thought that the Expedia numbers were horrible, by the way, Josh. I don't think they were good at all. They lost three times what the street was looking for, um, and they missed on revenue, too. But you can look over at TravelZoo, T-Z-O-O. Um, yeah, but, I mean, you can't just wipe those charges out, right? I mean, 78-cent loss is 78-cent loss. They were expecting 25 um, so that's why it's down 15%. It's not down 15% because they had blowout numbers. I can tell you that. But TravelZoo, T-Z-O-O, did have blowout numbers, and that one has held up better than any in the space. So I think Brad's still right to be betting on some of these travel stocks. Okay. Scott. So uh, speaking of numbers, uh, Paramount, Pharma Jim, you gave us your view going in. You were bullish. 
I'm wondering what your view is now. I know based on your Twitter feed, you're still bullish. But tell me why you're so bullish. And the stock, I should point out, was down about 6% off the print this morning, and it's cut those losses um, at least in half. And it's been trading around a bit, but it's not down 6% anymore. Yeah, um, Scott, it might be helpful if I just explain why it's down today. And if you listen to the earnings call, you would have heard the analysts and their questions, which were all incredibly negative and incredibly short-sighted. They were questions about how can Paramount outperform in subscriber editions when Netflix is losing ads or subscriber editions? And, you know, how much is Paramount going to have to spend to keep up with content? Both of those questions, of which there were many, missed the larger point that Paramount for the last two quarters has added 11 million subscribers to just the Paramount Plus uh, part of the business, let alone Pluto TV, while Netflix has basically been just you know flatlining here. And on the spend, and this is important to why I'm bullish, there's positive free cash flow here. There's a large cash balance. There are legacy properties and content here that will generate more and more positive free cash flow that enables them to invest in the business. They're clearly on target for their two year ahead uh, levels of 100 million subscribers in streaming. They're already at 62 million and 9 billion in revenue. So this is this is just a clear case of the analyst community, which is out there after the call telling all their institutional clients they don't like it. It's a clear case of short sightedness on their part. Long term investors are going to see this as an excellent opportunity in this name. OK, appreciate that quick break. Doc has unusual activity coming up next. All right, John, let's do unusual. What do you see today? Scott, uh, FXI. So the big China index, FXI ETF, um, 18,000 of the July 31 strike calls were bought, bought, bought. They were slightly in the money because uh, the FXI was 31.20 when they bought them, Scott. Second trade, uh, Procter & Gamble. This is a downside trade. These are puts. They were buying the June 155 puts with the stock trading 155.70. Says to me that maybe this shrinking the package to try to keep the price isn't working and maybe they're going to have to eat some of that uh, uh, that they're putting out to consumers rather than just passing it along. Lastly, take a look at uh, ENVX, this lithium battery play. $12 stock, they bought 7,000 of the May 15 calls. So in just two and a half weeks, they think it could have a nice pop. I bought all three, Scott. All right, good stuff. We'll take a quick break, and we'll do final trades next. Earnings tonight in overtime. Aaron Brown of PIMCO is going to be with us, the portfolio manager, giving a new playbook, not revealed until our program. But I said AMD, that stock was 164. It's now 90. Are these the numbers that get that stock back on track? You'll have to tune in to see the numbers, the color from uh, from the earnings report, and certainly the stock reaction. Lyft, Airbnb, Starbucks, some of the other big names that are out. Let's do finals. Stephanie Link, you're up first. Diamondback Energy, really great quarter. Beat total revenues, EBITDA, and inline oil volumes and inline CapEx. But the story is, is the special dividend. They increased the dividend, and they offered a special dividend as well. So they're returning share, cash to shareholders just like I like to see. All right. A reminder, too, Jeffrey Gunlock's going to be with us tomorrow for Fed Day uh, as well. Dr. J, go ahead. NCLH, Norwegian Cruise Line's 1950 puts that expire next week. These are puts that expire next week. I got gotcha. you. Uh, Farmer Jim, let me let me guess. Paramount Global. 
Yeah, well, it's really the best <laughs> trade I see right now. Maybe that's because Top Gun Maverick comes out this month. I'm not sure. Submariners and aviators don't really get along, but I'll still go watch that. It's only one of many reasons to own Paramount. <laughs> I, I had a feeling you were going to pick that one. And again, it's well off its lows of the day. I just want to keep uh, pointing that fact out. All right, Josh Brown, what do you have? Uh, Carlisle Group had very good earnings, $300 billion in total assets under management, and the fee income on those assets is growing despite the lumpiness of distribution. So I love this name, 2.7% dividend yield yep. while you wait. All right, good stuff. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you in the OT. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.